Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about it, i tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? And I thought, well, of all the thought leaders I've worked with who I've helped publish books, what is it something in common that they have? And the answer is they all wanted and was looking for credibility. Mm. And I go, well, what is credibility? And there wasn't really a good answer. And I go, huh. I'm going to interview people on credibility. It was that that next day that Napoleon Hill came into my mind. I thought, well, Napoleon Hill interviewed 500 millionaires and wrote Think and Grow Rich. If Mitchell Levy interviews 500 thought leaders on credibility, he'll have that next thing. In those interview processes, I unlocked a ton of secrets. Is your credibility important? Well, you need to feel you are, but more importantly, your potential clients need to believe it first. But how do we get there? Our guest on the show this week is Mitchell Levy from Credibility Nation. And as you were here, we both discovered and learned much from this conversation. Mitchell Levy has has had a long and successful classical business career from banking to internet systems and so much more. He's had several publishing companies and supporting business leaders to write books and has written over 60 books of his own. He's spoken at TEDx events and is an executive coach at the Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches. Clearly an accomplished man. But back in 2019, he was looking for some change and decided to follow in the steps of Napoleon Hill. He set out to interview 500 executives on the subject of success and credibility and the findings from that research have changed his life. He's discovered that how we do business has changed forever and it will never go back because credibility is key. So join me in this conversation where we explore Mitchell's journey and discover some of the tools and tips he has in finding your own credibility. Let's join the conversation with Mitchell Levy. You know, I well, think all right, if, where did you where did you where did where were you born and how did your childhood unfold? Oh, better question. Okay. Thank you. Much more, much more concrete. I was going to, I was going to go Buddhist on you and where I begin. (laughs) The Buddhist, the Buddhist answer is it begins right now, this minute. It's Mm. being present to this moment. So I was born right this minute and a minute from now I was born again, right this minute. So um, let's, let's, let's cover life before you were enlightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) 
born uh, American, so born in the East Coast, uh, New York, and uh, grew up in New Jersey. I was a premature baby. Mm. And there was probably some things that we would capture today, uh, but I was mostly lost in my youth. And uh, we would have had terms associated with it. One of the areas in terms of when I was born is when I went to uh, university. And, and that marks a significant transformation of who I was. Right. So what was your childhood like? I mean, you say that you, 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 were, you had a different childhood. What does that mean for you? I don't think I was fully present. My mom was a school teacher with three kids. Um, dad uh, divorced her and so we were we grew up below the poverty line uh, ouch we didn't see or we didn't know i didn't know she did such a great job it was mm. you know it's one of those childhoods what was fun as a as a memory but i can't i won't get the days right but it was like hot dogs on monday sloppy joes on tuesday you know it was it was a kid's dream right mm. things that were now in retrospect uh, things that that when we eat, if we go to a restaurant, we we're way over pain. But we, when we eat, we're like, yeah, that's not that stuff not good for you. But it's relatively inexpensive, and and that's what uh, and it made it easy. So, what were your childhood passions and things? What were the, what were the things you were involved in as a child? What did you enjoy? I didn't do so. I'm going to say I, there wasn't much in zero to eighteen. There's only shards of of memory uh did a paper route at one point in time i do have a brother and a sister so the occasional fighting if i'm thinking about things that are coming to memory um having a loving mom having a a father that wasn't there and didn't know how to be a father mm -hmm. yeah just trying to think not you know so life start, sounds like life started at university for you yeah, it, you know, it's it's sort of when it gets a lot more vibrant. Mm. So in high school, I was maybe a B was a good grade for me, C's and D's in high school. And then I went to the University of Miami. And, uh, you know, people would uh, or at the time called it a party school. I don't know if it's called that today. And it turned out I was in a dorm where and i wish i only wish social media was around and i probably should look at old yearbooks and figure it out but there were there were two gorgeous women women that i started hanging out with and what they did for fun on friday night was go to the library <laughs> so i ended up going to the library and and for some odd reason i woke up and so in my now, I, I don't know if grades is a calibration of waking up, um, but but it's much more vibrant. Everything is much more vibrant than in my first semester. I ended up getting uh, uh, two B's, uh, but the rest were A's. Uh, my second semester, I got one B and the rest were A's and the rest of my college career were all A's. So what was the subject that, that, had, that had lit the, the fire under you? Well, I think it was, I don't even know if it was a subject, but I will talk about that in a second. It, I believe it was 
meeting two, you know, we, we often talk about the, you're the sum of, of the five Mm -hmm. most influential people around you and, and having two gorgeous women who were smart and want to do something with their lives. Although I can't remember their names or their faces or what it was, but that was, that got me going. And I ended up, you know, uh, joining the student body when the, when graduated great graduation happened, there were like 3000 graduates. Um, and although I was not the valedictorian, I was the person the Dean chose to, to receive the diploma for the entire business school, the 3000 students. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting. So anyhow, when I first started, I was university of Miami. I chose international finance and marketing. So in, in Miami, it's, that's a good thing to start. And I know this sounds really strange to say, uh, I found the courses so simple and so easy, which by the way, compared to high school was like, like these are not words that would have come out of Mitchell's mouth mm-hmm. that I went to the guidance counselor and I said, what was, what is the, if I, I want a business degree, what is the hardest um, subject I could study? And apparently the business school and the industrial engineering school had done a, had created a program. And uh, the program was called uh, uh, Bachelor of Science in Stochastic and Deterministic Models of Operational Research. Wow. And she said, do that. I go, <laughs> okay. Now, by the way, there were of the 3,000 business school students, I had four people who were part of that program uh, with me. It sounds like a very specialized place to be. (laughs) Well, it was, we were also with industrial engineers. So it was mostly industrial engineering courses. Hmm. And and if I'm going to summarize, I mean, I love saying the words and still being able to pronounce all the syllables. But what, what it really was is how do you model people and systems and how do you improve them? Hmm. And Paul, what was fascinating to me is, and I didn't recognize this till about, you know, two or three decades after I graduated, but I use stuff I learned in my undergraduate every day. And, and, and not many people can say that because I, I think the academic institutions are not structured for the way life should be today. And so I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I use it all the time. Nice, nice. And so you came out of college with a degree, by the sounds of it, and a, a, a very different person, someone that was woken up and ready for the world. So I'm going to say yes, sort of. <laughs> All right, so, there's always uh, a caveat. <laughs> there's always a caveat. Um, so I went to, uh, the summer between graduating and my, uh, I decided to get an MBA right away. Um, I realized that I probably wouldn't get an MBA, although right now I'm going for a PhD, so silly me, but I wouldn't get, if I wasn't forced to do it, like I would, if I didn't force myself, I wouldn't have got the MBA. So I uh, applied to the University of Miami. This is the period of time when MBAs were very much the thing, isn't it? I mean, was this the 80s, was this? Yeah. Because MBAs really came up to the, well, you have to get your MBA. So it was a... it was an important element. Yes, yes, yes. And and then I also applied to the College of William, William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. And the during the summer, now these were 
old days where you use pay phones and making a call to the United States and a pay phone was really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really didn't talk to my mom. My mom ended up getting remarried to the person who I actually now call dad. Mm-hmm. Um, he died a couple of years ago, um, but an amazing man. And, uh, and so I talked to my mom, I think once, but she didn't tell me until I got home um, from the summer that I was accepted into the College of William and Mary with a half tuition fellowship. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So at the time, my parents had moved to Philadelphia and I drove from Philadelphia to uh, down to Miami. And in, in the drive, I stopped at uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, to visit the College of William and Mary. And it's a beautiful campus, uh, you know, second oldest college in the, or university in the country and just beautiful. And so I checked into the dorms at the University of Miami and I make a phone call. I can't remember if it, I still think it was pay phones, but made a phone call to, uh, it's so hard to think about the old school pay phone thing, mm-hmm. but to the dean at the College of William and Mary and, and told him I was gone for the summer. And and I, I just realized that I had a half for tuition fellowship. And and is it still open? I, I mean, I've checked into the dorms, but I, you know, is it still open? And he goes, give me a couple of minutes. So he he went away and he came back and he goes, he goes, Mitchell, not only is the fellowship open, um, but if you'd like to join us, we'd like to, we'd love to have you and we'll make it a full tuition fellowship. And, and so now it's sort of on par with Miami. The only difference is it was two years at the College of William Mary and one year at Miami because it was a continuation of the business school. Mm-hmm. And so I mentioned that and he goes, okay, I'll take a half, a, I'll take a, a semester off. How so, could he? How could he negotiate and 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 do this? This is like haggling of that education. How could he do that? I, it's a very interesting. I guess when you're a dean, you get to do stuff like that. So he, my guess is he called the sponsor. So I was sponsored by a guy over at Leg Mason Wood, Wood Walker, which is where I did my first, where I did my internship hmm. um, over the summer. Um, so that was. So he probably called the sponsor, and the sponsor wanted to do that. Um, in terms of semester, there is some flexibility. He couldn't take the year off and I'm glad he didn't because the difference between undergraduate and grad is undergraduate. Uh, how I did so well at school was the answer was always in the back of the book mm. um, and taking it another level. It was not only in the back of the book, but 40% of the final exam, the instructor, the instructor actually told you on day one, mm-hmm. you just had to really pay attention, take good Mm. notes. And uh, when you get to grad school, particularly MBA school, there is no answer in the back of the book. And that's kind of what the first year is about. And the second year is applying it. So you have to create it. You have to come up with the stuff. I know. So so here I am at the College of William Mary um, in both first and second grade, second year (laughs) classes. And I'm kind of a fish out of water because I'm always thinking the answers in the back of the book. So I, I had to work really hard to 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 learn that. I my first semester I got all A's because I wanted to prove it wasn't just Miami, uh, but I did not work as hard on this second and third uh, semesters. And one of the things that happened, and this is getting to roses or not so roses, is uh, I ended up befriending one of the faculty members. 
Um, he was in finance and I was doing an independent study with him. And this is in my last, uh, last semester. And he wanted to prove a financial model of his worked over, you know, worked over um, the traditional ways that people were investing stocks. And I had a breakthrough. I remember somewhere around 2 a.m. and produced all the reports. I think we we're using SAS or SPSS and put it on put them on his desk. And he was really happy. And two weeks later, I'd already started writing the paper and I came in to meet with him and and told him how excited I was. And here's the start of the paper. And, and I want to make sure that his name's on it, blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, does this sound like a good plan to you? And he said, no. And I'm like, huh? And it turned out that he used the research to get a job at Colonial Mutual Fund. And he goes, hey, listen, I use your research. I got a job at Colonial Mutual Fund in Boston and you're coming with me. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so that's how I got to Boston. And, and the reason why I said that was not necessarily a good thing is it turns out he was hedonistic and narcissistic. Hmm. And uh, well, he used your research without your permission, which is okay because I was doing a, I was doing an independent study with him. Um, but he ended up teaching me a lot of really bad. He was my first real male mentor, um, and he uh, he ended up teaching me a lot of really bad things. And hmm. and I only stayed with him for a year, but he stayed with me, I think, for like thirty five. Hmm. Some of the lessons he taught you did, were hard to get rid of. Ah, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. That's all right. It's part of life. It is. It is. So obviously, you're now in a career. What is your What was the career you you found yourself in? Um, I started off. Uh, let's see. Post MBA, I was in Boston for three years. Mm -hmm. um, I was. I've always been that intermediary between two functions. So, you know, I, I ended up doing uh, investment uh, investment systems as part of colonial, colonial mutual fund. And then I moved over to State Street Bank and did the same thing. I was a senior systems officer. Being, by the way, being an officer at, at a bank gets you this unduly, uh, un, unduly recognition. Like when yes. you walk into the bank and you're an officer, they don't know what type of officer you are. So it's sort of like they they salute to you. It was weird, right? Um, it gives you a credibility, which happens to tie into it, something that you do. <laughs> it definitely gives you uh, potentially undue credibility. Um, and I ended up meeting uh, the, at somewhere around three years time frame, I, it was time I think I, for me to, to find the one the, that, that woman. And, and I ended up finding somebody and, and six, probably two months after I met her and we spent time together, she moved to California. Hmm. And six months after that, I moved and followed her. Hmm. And uh, there's, there's a longer story, but not one for a podcast that has to do with serendipity, but we'll just say there's lots of serendipity in our meetings and our activities serendipity uh, is always interesting but as you say it's up to you when you share those sort of things yeah well but, it, that, but that serendipity makes you recognize that something is the right direction doesn't it 
uh, well, if you th- yeah, if you think about it, I I got to Boston because of that faculty member, hmm. and when my girlfriend, uh, now wife of thirty three years, uh, moved to California, it turned out that my parents, while I was in uh, while I was in college, ended up moving from Philadelphia to California. Now California is a very big state. Hmm. And it and she didn't know when she first said she was she took a job in California. She didn't know where it was going to be, but she was going to go for the weekend and figure it out. And when she came back, it turns out that she moved, she was moving and working 15 minutes away from my parents. So it got me back. There's just tons of of interesting uh one of my one of my uh good friends when I was in high school who I completely lost touch with, turns out that that one of my wife's best friends ended up marrying one of my good friends, brother. <laughs> and so, you know, there's lots of serendipity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've met so many couples with, with, with serendipitous type relationships like this where different family members are connected in some way or some spurious way. It's all quite fascinating. It, it really is. Yeah, it really yeah. is. So it sounds like you were in so you were in the banking industry, which which over the last few years has not had the best reputation. So, but how long did you how long did you stay in the banking industry? Oh, uh, just three years. Oh, okay. Um, and then when it was time to move to California, I started looking for a job, and I ended up in a uh, I ended up in a startup company that was servicing the banking industry. So just mm-hmm. continuing the loop, and what when somebody first is it hears about silicon valley so i moved to silicon valley when somebody first hears about silicon valley and 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 you hear about these startup companies and you hear about the companies that have done really well as a young person you think to yourself man these streets are paved with gold i'm going to go there and i'm going to be made for life right and it turns out that the company's business model was based on three fundamental tenants and two of the three tenants were wrong. So <laughs> it, we, it only lasted for a year before they ran out of money. Mm. And, and in that stage, so I, so I moved to California, um, had a, had a girlfriend, knew I was going to ask her, but hadn't asked her to marry me yet. Knew I was going to. And, and I'm thinking to myself, what's next. And that's when, uh, my parents made a recommendation that I said yes to. They said, "Want it if since you're not sure what you want to do?" Because I wasn't sure I was going to stay in the banking industry. Um, they said, "Why don't you go to a large company, and then you can move around and figure out what you like, and you can make friends." and And so it turns out that my brother had a friend who was working at Sun Microsystems, and he introduced me to. And that friend uh, that my brother had, I'm still friends with him today. And he introduced me to um, my the guy who hired me, who I'm still friends with today. And I ended up spending nine years at Sun Microsystems. Which is probably the best time to be in it, because that's the massive growth period for Sun Microsystems. That the 80s was, and 90s must have been, they must, they must have been on a real steep curve. They were the... I mean, they, they this the is trends. servers, isn't it? Servers and server systems, isn't it? They, they, were, the, they were the darlings that brought the internet yeah. to, to the world. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So you were literally riding the cusp of a very big wave. And, and it, was, it was amazing. So I, I spent the, I think it was the first five, six years 
focused in the on the financial side so uh, uh financial systems it was kind of it was it was almost close to the internal audit right so we worked closely with an internal audit and and i ended up one of the projects i did which i which i loved is a uh FP&A financial planning and analysis system that analyzed the data in a much more real now by the way all everything i did then was is is now off the shelf huh. but but then we had to build it yeah and so pulling data from the general ledger and letting oh, yeah. the financial analysts see it from around the world and so my big lesson from that one was traveling around the world and training the same systems to the same people but doing it in East Coast, which I'm sorry, starting with the West Coast. So how you train people, financial analysts um, and financial planners in the West Coast is different than how you train on the East Coast. And went to London, um, France, Germany, Hong Kong, Japan. And what was fascinating is culturally, you know, like in California, you don't drink during lunch. But when we're at the East Coast. If I didn't have a drink during lunchtime, they weren't going to accept me. And then, and then I moved over to London. It was a beer. And France, it was a wine. Germany, it was beer. Um, you know, Hong Kong. And and I think the thing that was most fascinating to me was when I learned so quickly in Japan that yes didn't mean like if I said, "Do you understand this concept?" Um. And I would get yes. Yes, because and no no is dishonorable. So what they what they were really saying is yes, I heard that you asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand the question. Right. So it's so fascinating. So I had to learn how yeah. quickly adjust how there are a I, few cultures that have that problem where they say yes, I understand the question. That that well, because I don't want to say no because that's disrespectful to you. Yeah. So anyway, so it, was, <laughs> it was really interesting to learn and to train around the world that yeah. way. Uh, and then I moved from there to uh, Sun Supply Chain and I was running the e-commerce component. So it's when e-commerce started um, or the Internet started uh, uh, getting much more prevalently used inside company. The guy who was running uh, operations said, hey, I, I need to be able to tell a story to the board. Uh, Mitchell, why don't you come in and tell me? He basically said, "Here's here are the divisions. Here's what we do. Um, you just need to tell me uh, what what I should do. How do I report it to the board? How much money should I spend? And what's the end result?" And so it was a fantastic time to to build a budget, put a game plan in place, and and I ended up when I left Sun, I was running the e-commerce component of Sun Supply Chain, and it was it was amazing. Nice, nice. So that's how I got there. I, you know, I, I'm trying to think in, in terms of life, passion, and business. I, it's about I, what was driving the what was driving all of this. Is the where is the you know the, what was the driver for you? Was it the, the 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 technology, the cutting edge side of it? Was it the people you were working with? What was it about? You know the. And it can just be the money, by the way. If you, if you, that, oh, it can, it's definitely that, not. Yeah, definitely not that. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think I've I've generally been very good at um, having two different groups of people understand each other. So you know, when I mean, each step along the way, post 
uh, post college, I I I found I f- I found the simple button, you know. And, and in undergrad, it was the answers in the back of the book or first day of class. Grad school, it was you you really have to build teamwork and work with your people. Um, each step along the way, um, in 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 Boston, it was being able to talk both to the people doing the investing and the systems people and be able to interface. You know, the same thing was true when I when I got to California and at, at Sun and in the supply chain side, you know, at, at Sun, there was so much less tech technologically adept. And so being able to talk to them and also help them work with their work with the suppliers who were supplying stuff and get information quickly. And and so up until then it was always about seeing a vision. Mm. And in this case, particularly what got me started was when the VP of operations said, Hey, Mitchell, paint us, paint me a plan, what I need to do. I got a feeling of how he was working, you know, his working is he wanted to, he just didn't want to be embarrassed. He didn't say this to me, but he didn't want to be embarrassed when he went to the board and talked about how they were using the internet in the operations world, the supply chain side. Right. So that was my job. And, and it was in 1997 that the dot com had just really started and taking flourish. And, and I, uh, I realized the importance of, of, uh, of the internet, where it was going. And so I, I go to my wife and I go, and by the way, she's now pregnant with our first and only son. And I go, you know, I think I'm leaving son. And I think I'm going to create a consulting business and, and I'm going to focus on um, deploying the internet inside companies. And, uh, and, and she had one question um, and that was, Hey, can we still have our son? Can I still have birth my son in the hospital? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, and she goes, okay. And, and what was fascinating is I was still so naive at the time, but and I hung up the shingle, e-commerce consultant, and and I started going to my friends. And and one of my friends, um, uh, for, former boss at at Sun, he had started a web company, you know, developing websites for people. And I told him, so he had seen me, he knows who I am and what I can do. And I I told him what I was doing because I don't have a, any role for that. But Mitchell. I've had five companies ask us about doing SEO, search engine optimization. And I can't, I don't have any resources to get my team to do that. And so if you could learn about SEO and tell me what I should charge the clients and how much you want to make, I'm happy to make stuff happen. And so it, was I took about two weeks now in 1997 98 um SEO was uh, so easy in those days SEO was so amazingly easy I bought everything on the marketplace yeah I came back and I said um I said Rick um how about you charge fifteen thousand dollars and give me ten you keep five and and this is what I'll do and we immediately sold five and what was interesting is the the simple thing, by the way, way back when was to have the CEO or the or the uh, marketing person 
be able to give their 30 second elevator pitch. And when they gave their 30 second elevator pitch, there was there were typically two or three phrases that were repeated. And those those phrases that were repeated, you want to have separate pages on that and make those your keywords and key phrases. It was it wasn't quite that simple, but it was pretty much it was pretty close to that. And uh, now on all five uh, companies I work with. The 30 second pitch was 10 minutes long. So three of them actually became strategic consulting clients as well. <laughs> right. And uh, and and it was interesting. So when I was starting to work my, for myself, I once again, always let serendipity work. And this is for this is for uh, anyone who's listening on on. If you end up working for yourself, you need to have credibility marks. And a friend of mine um, said to me, Mitchell, if you're going to work for yourself, you have to do at least one of these three things write a book, speak at events, teach at a university, because those are credibility markers. And I ended up doing all three. Um, not not all at the exact same time, but but within a year, I had done all three. And uh, should I continue the story? It's a good Did story. it work? It, it, it ended up working really well. So um, the largest IT conference in the world was was called uh, Comdex, and I wanted to run a, co- a conference for Comdex, and I ended up. Uh, it's actually I'll tell a little a slightly larger story. So, what happened is I ended up when I started working for myself, I was all in. I don't think I had my passion. My passion's always been to be of service to others. Um, but I didn't have a bigger life. And my wife, my son was born and my wife spent like full time um, taking care of him. And so about when he was about one, one and a half, I I said to her, um, "Hun, I, I think I know the gift I can give you. And, and she said, OK, tell me. I said, I'm going to take because I, I work seven days a week, I, I'm going to take Sunday off. I'm going to spend it with our son. And and she immediately looked at me, so smart. She immediately looked at me and said, okay, honey, that's a great gift for you. What about me? <laughs> and I realized right away what she meant. And I go, huh, okay. Well, I miscalculated. <laughs> I had to call me on that one. And, and what I said to her is, well, what if I took a month off and you planned a trip for us in Europe because she'd love going to Europe. You plan mm. a trip for us in Europe. I'll take a month off. Now, I'll still have to maintain whatever business stuff is going on, but I'll be primarily um, you and the family. And so we ended up doing that and have done that for the last 23 years. We we rent a house in Europe somewhere. We invite friends and family to come visit. Um, and so it was our first year. We were in France. We invited people to come. But nobody believed us. So we only ended up having like three sets of visitors. <laughs> it was the, the least amount of people who visited us. Um, in that first week, we had nobody coming. And so I was reading email and I deleted an email. And I go, huh, that's interesting. I think that said Comdex. And so I undeleted it. And it turned out it was the person running uh, running the event who had sent an email saying, hey, listen, a person pulling together the the conference for us pulled out last minute. Uh, we got to go in three weeks. Um, I need somebody to come in and 
and write the content and book the speakers. You up for that? So I, in this case, because it was officially my wife first, I asked her uh, for permission. Uh, she said yes, and I ended up booking. I, you know, I wrote the content, got paid for it, and ended up booking sixty speakers at Comdex. And the business deal I worked out was the same that I did at the university, and that was twenty five percent of the door. Wow. And and how I got, by the way, how I got that deal was at the university I was teaching. And I was running out of time. And so one of the techniques I've always used in life is when I when I want to quit, I went to the dean, and this is how I'm teaching at the San Jose State University. And I and I basically say, hey, listen, I have to do more or I have to do less. Because I don't want to say, hey, listen, pay me more money, because that doesn't work. There's rules and regulations. Mm. I said, but I, I I need to, we need to change. And and they said, Mitchell, why don't you create a, a program for us? Why don't you create a certification program? Actually, no, sorry, certificate program, not certification. And uh, I go, huh, okay. Let me let me think about that and come back to you. So I, I said, let's, let's put time on the calendar three weeks from now. I needed a deadline. And when I came back, what I said was, um, nine months from now, we should start. So let's start in fall. Um, we'll start, we'll kick off with 30 classes. Um, I'll build the classes. I'll recruit the instructors. I'll make sure the content is good. And then I said something that made the dean laugh. I said, I don't want you to pay me a thing. I don't want to be paid hourly. Just give me 25% of the door. And he laughed because nobody... And by the way, in, in the university space, they call the people who who are running programs. They technically call them coordinators, right? Right, uh, because there's the, the, there's no other title that's listed. Yeah. So, a coordinator has never built a program, marketed it, and made money on it. But this was turned out to be the first e. It was called e-commerce management. It was the first um, university offered a program on what the internet is and how it will change business on the planet. And so we had people coming from around the world flying into Silicon Valley for three months to take the program. Um, we sold 4,700 courses, took in over 2 million of revenue. Um, and, and the dean ran to sign the contract because he thought I was being stupid. And of course- um, You had to and, pay it, it was very different. <laughs> and this is unfortunately, didn't recognize how valuable it was that I brought the university 1.5 million. He only, he only sort of, chagrined at having to pay me a half a million hmm. it sounds like you've you've had some wonderful opportunities in your life and wonderful serendipitous moments and you literally have followed just followed the path by the sounds of it i i think what happens for most of us is if if you have an upbeat attitude and approach and you want to be of service to others the opportunities to be of service will present themselves. Mm. And what happens for many people is they, they're not listening or they don't see, or that beautiful opportunity is presented to them. And, and they just, they actually just don't, they just don't see it. So I, I really, really ever say no. Um, 
because you know you, you you really don't know where things go and my entire life has been one one moment of serendipity over another mm. so how i mean clearly the, the, i mean you've where were you today how is that journey i mean this is this would get very long if we actually strip it out further so how did you get to where you are now what what caused that i was well, i was giving the opportunity because this took so long so let's summarize um so let me give you credibility points uh what other people think are credible in terms of what i've done in my life so that'll take a minute and then i'll dive a little bit in terms terms of what i'm doing today so uh Today, when when if you looked at my LinkedIn profile or my websites, you know I've ended up sitting on the board of a of a Nasdaq firm for nine years. I've created four executive business programs at Silicon Valley Universities. Um, one of my students from one of my earlier executive uh, e-commerce management program asked me to co-found a CEO networking group. So I ran four CEO networking uh, groups for a decade. Um, I created 20-ish companies. Um, I had an interest in book publishing. So I now have four book publishing companies. We've published over 750 books. The goal was always to make the book writing process simple. And I always had to be the, the person who was testing it myself. So I've now written over 65 books personally. Um, and, and what... So that's the summary of stuff. I'm sure there's one or two things missing. And and uh, what ended up happening is is uh, I I decided uh, I decided in 2019 it was time for something new, um, and I didn't know what it was. And I thought, well, of all the thought leaders I've worked with who I've helped publish books. What is it something in common that they have? And the answer is they all wanted and was looking for credibility. Mm. And I go, well, what is credibility? And there wasn't really a good answer. And I go, huh, I'm going to interview. Um, I'm going to interview people on credibility. It was that that next day that Napoleon Hill came into my mind. I thought, well, Napoleon Hill interviewed 500 millionaires and wrote Think and Grow Rich. If Mitchell Levy interviews 500 thought leaders on credibility, he'll have that next thing. Um, I, in those interview processes, I unlocked a ton of secrets. Um, and, and that's what I've been deploying for the last three years. And uh, during that time, I was asked to join Marshall Goldsmith, the number one CEO coach, executive coach on the planet. I had been invited into an organization he runs called 100 Coaches. So that's when I realized, oh, I had been executive coaching. I just haven't talked about it. You yeah. sit on the board of a public company. That's what you do. Mm. The CEO networking groups, you know, a couple hundred CEOs that I worked with. So so I hung up that shingle, uh, executive coaching. And for three years, I was deploying credibility and I will publicly say that my wife, when I first started deploying it, said something to me, and it, I will say uh, on air that she was right. Uh, Paul, she said, um, you know, honey, that all business people think they're credible. Whether or not you're uh, politically on the left side or the right side or in the middle, you all think you're credible. And, and so the... The goals I had for the credibility business. So I 
ended up writing a book called Credibility Nation, have a membership community of 450 members called Credibility Nation, deploying credibility, and I have not hit the goals I wanted to hit. And I was in a, uh, I was in a particular session watching somebody do their superpower in me. Um, it was an amazingly powerful woman who who can look at you and and help you define how do you 10x your business and and she could do a two hour session to to help you do that. And as I was doing that, I realized that if I'm going to be successful, I need to bring out not the word credibility because what I was doing is is to be credible. There are ten values and. But those values are in relation to into the clarity you have. And so what I realized is I need to focus on clarity because if you have clarity, you could then be credible. And so uh, hang on a minute. Credibility, though, surely there's two sides. It's like a lot of the other two sides to credibility. I can think I'm credible. I can think I, my, what I offer has credibility, but it's nothing to do with what I think. It's about what people see is credibility. Uh huh. Absolutely. Oh, you're right on. You know, and, right and that's right. that's all that matters is what people see. It's the perception of the audience you serve. Yeah. That is the only thing that's relevant in terms of credibility, mm. and the thing that I call <clears throat> clarity is 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 fine tuning with absolute clarity. Who is the audience you serve? Mm. And if you know the audience and really fine-tuned it, because we're taught otherwise, we're taught to throw out a huge fishing net and then all, all the minnows and all the tuners slip by, you know, and 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 we end up not doing well. If you <sighs> if you know the audience and you fine-tune the audience that that you're focused on, what's interesting is you you also want to be able to speak their language. What do they care about? They either care about a specific pain point that they want to overcome or a specific pleasure point they want to reach. And so Clarity, what I ended up doing is creating a Clarity certification program. Um, and 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 what we do first is we, we allow people, I, I have a term, I call it the CPOP, your customer point of possibilities. And so what we do is we... Uh, two things. <laughs> and actually, technically, the program has three things. So I'll come to the third. First, the person in the program needs to actually have clarity themselves. So who is who are you serving? Who is the audience you serve? And either what is their pain point or pleasure point? And that thing is called a CPOP, your customer point of possibilities. And the CPOP is 10 words or less. So Paul, if you could in 10 words or less, uh, mine is eight words, um, the one I had right before this one was four words. But if you could, in 10 words or less, articulate the audience you want to see you as being credible and to be able to talk in the language they want to listen to, pain point or pleasure point, like it changes everything. Mm, and does. so what I do with those in the program is, is, A, they have to have it themselves, and then they need to be able to deliver it to their client base. So not just... You know, whatever program, whatever offering they have today, they also need, they also get clarity on top of that. And and I'll do one more thing and I'll, I'll sit for a question. When I started looking at certification programs, 
um, certification programs being significantly different than certificate programs. So now we have a certification program where people can put the letter CCS at the end of their name, Certified Clarity Specialist. And when I started looking at them, I realized that the world has moved on past initially people getting certified, right? Because if you think about what happened in 2023 with with GPT and with uh, Google's product, Bard, with AI, is information is now ubiquitous. Let's, let's take it a step further. Thought leadership is now ubiquitous. Anyone who wants to can write a topic on anything they don't know about by just mm -hmm. asking the right questions, right prompt on GPT. Yep. Thought leadership is ubiquitous. So what that means is giving somebody a certification doesn't mean they're getting business. It just means they are qualified to do something. And so what I've bundled into this program is a business in a box. It essentially, how do you go about going after the leads of the people you want to serve? How best should you nurture them? And how do you actually close business? And doing so in a way that you're delivering clarity and whatever your superpower is. And so that's 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 what I ended up doing. And uh, it will change the face of certification programs once I can show the effectivity of this working. Mm. What I have come to realize over the last few years on this sort of area is that most of the time when it comes to business and doing business with people, because it's also ubiquitous, because there's information everywhere and there's no shortage of information, at the end of the day, it comes down to the relationship. It comes down to, do I feel comfortable and happy to work with this person? Does he make me smile? Does he make me feel good in some, some level? And some of those qualities are, some people don't have them. Some people have, some people really struggle to bring those qualities out in themselves. It, um, You've done a really good job of of prepping me to share with you the definition of credibility that came out of the interviews. Mm. Because what what's bundled into what I do with the the clarity program is is fundamentally credibility. I, my goal when I finish the interviews was share credibility with the world. I have a a TEDx called "We Are Losing Our Humanity," mm. and I'm tired of watching it happen. And what the the fundamental tenets of the of the TEDx is, listen, if you want to be more humane to each other, the way to do it is by being credible. And and so credibility is is really three things. It's the quality in which you are trusted, the quality which you are known, and the quality which you're liked. No like and trust, which is what has been around in marketing so it's for years. Actually, yeah, what was interesting is I... I did start when I did the TEDx and I did my book, I actually used the phrase no like and trust because it, it was spot on. The truth is, though, when I started deploying it about a year into deploying it, I realized I made a mistake. It's not no like and trust because when they when they say no like and trust, what they're referring to is, well, I need to go to the yellow pages and I need to be known first. And then I need to be liked and then you could trust me to to do business, but that's not actually how it works in today's world. How it works in today's world is 
trust comes first and i need to uh, so for instance if if you if you wanted a you had a particular problem you want to get solved and you landed on somebody's website you're going to give that website somewhere between 5 to 10 seconds to see if you trust them enough to want to spend the time and energy to get to know them better this is why i cannot have and i have no understanding of why we're still getting telesales i do not understand why my phone goes with someone who's a complete random and the same with things like on, on you know, the DMs in LinkedIn and places. A complete random turns up and tells me they can offer me this thing that's going to give me a 5x. Oh, pizza. I know. And thinks of, who the hell are you? How, how, why would I? <laughs> exactly. What, what you want to hear first is not somebody saying, so what they're doing is they're on the old spectrum. Thank you for, for making me think about it. They're on the old spectrum, no like, and trust. Hey, by the way, if you know me, and I let a million people know what I do, someone's going to say yes, and maybe that's true. Well, yes, you're down to numbers game. Absolutely. You, you hit someone exactly the right playing. moment. You, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But if they thought about the world differently, mm -hmm. and they thought about the world saying, hey, let me build a little bit of trust. Let me build enough trust so that we could actually have a conversation and you get to know me. Mm -hmm. And by, so trust is the, is does that person have vulnerability integrity authenticity is that person coachable right that's what those are the four values of trust when you get to know somebody it's not that i know of them it's that i know them mm -hmm. right and that's where it gets really interesting because as you get to know somebody you get to determine whether or not you like them and and likability by the way this is the one thing this is so easy you want to be liked so easy. You're, you're doing it right now. There are two things. There are two values associated with being liked. Um, one is showing respect. Okay. Showing respect is so easy in the business world. Come early, come prepared, come with your heart. Mm -hmm. Okay. So easy. The second is I call it spreading cred dust, sharing somebody else, sharing somebody else's thoughts, ideas, and actions. Paul, that's what you're doing right now. You and I had a conversation. We really liked each other. You said, hey, Mitchell, come on my show. I'd love to, to have you. And and you're you're spreading my cred dust. Right? Mm. I, I like you that much more because you, and, and by the way, you gave me a really interesting idea of of comparing and contrasting, you know, the, the trust, no like versus no like trust. And that's got to be an article I do. So thank you for that. So getting me back onto some of my questions otherwise because because you and i we, we are clearly dangerous couple to be next to each other speaking because we obviously can go on all sorts of interesting journeys how i mean success for you has had a journey and wh what is success for you now you know at some stage it was make money and you know, all those sort of things and get the next appointment but success does have a journey and i think it needs to we need to define what it means for ourselves so when I was, I'm going to give you the, the the naive form of success that I had as I was doing the interviews and came to the end. And then I'll tell you how, how I'm deploying it now. Okay. Um, when I was so enthralled with the 500 people, and one of the things that, that I have a superpower in, uh, one of your questions, is... I have the superpower of seeing the 
the simplicity that somebody has that's their superpower and being able to articulate in 10 words or less. And so the interviews, the first thing I'd have the person on the other side do is tell me their CPOP, their customer point of possibilities. And we would do green room conversations up front to help them fine tune that level of clarity. And for those that couldn't fine tune it, I'd, I'd, by the way, this is always what would happen, which is interesting is, is someone would come on, they would prepare, they would think that I would challenge in the video, I'd send ahead of time to prepare 16 minute video. I'd say, listen, 98% of you cannot actually articulate your CPOP. Can you be in the 2%? I want to, I want to be able to name the people in the 2% and they'd come in, Mitchell, I'm in the 2%. And, and they, and they still weren't quite there. Some people have so much marketing cookie cutter mumbo jumbo that they, that they won't be able to do it in a half hour. So when I recognize somewhere between the 10 to 15 minute mark that they couldn't do it, I'd say, listen, I don't think we're going to get to the point where we have clarity that we can actually record your interview today. Would you mind if we spend the rest of the time talking about you <laughs> and we'll schedule another time? Mm. Nobody says no to that, by the no. way. And and that's an aspect of what I like doing. I believe when I look back at my life, I've I've really spent time putting tools in the hands of people to be successful. And when I the naive but, but, aspect, but what does successful mean? Ah, so the naive piece of it was when I did my TEDx, uh, which was the uh, 28th most popular in 2021. It was, how can humanity be more humane, hmm. right? And, and I kind of thought, hey, once I show people the simple path, uh, we're going to create a movement. That was me being naive. So what, what I'm doing now is I'm taking a very specific vertical that has a problem. And that vertical are coaches. Now, by the way, if just to be clear, everybody needs to be a coach. If you're a teacher, you're a coach. If you're a business person, you're a coach. Because um, if you're running a, a software company, you you need to coach. Like like coaching is is the, almost everyone will be and incorporate some form of coaching. So yeah. although it's very narrow, but what happens with coaches is they typically have gotten a certification. So they have a methodology. But nowhere and, saying it. And what they're really good at is delivery. And what they really suck at is business development. Mm -hmm. And so let me give you my CPOM. Coaches who have created a job, not a business. Mm -hmm. Like, oh. And, and, you know, I haven't had anyone say that yet, but I'm waiting for the first person to say, Mitchell, I resemble that remark. <laughs> right. And so, so success is to use a metaphor when I hand somebody or help them articulate and find their fishing pole and, and they, they know how to put bait on the hook and know how to catch, catch and cook their fish. That sounds a nice definition of success. That to me is success. So I'm doing this now with coaches is, okay, how do you have, how do you have simplicity in your business? How do you have simplicity and share that as, as part of your delivery for your clients? 
And how do you have a consistent flow of, of leads coming in that you turn into clients so it's not this feast or famine thing? Um, by the way, I'm not 100% there yet. I, I'm close, but I'm still in the alpha beta stages of making it making it simple because we those people who are in my alpha group today, we still need to shed all the marketing cookie cutter stuff and all the things that 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 they've been taught is the ready the way of doing business versus versus a if you were able to construct a business today not on no like trust which which has all these negative consequences but if you were able to construct a business based on trust no and like it's a different go to market strategy mm -hmm. it is by the way that was you thank you for i i didn't i would not have said that without the questions that you shared today thank you thank you so let's go on to the next one contribution how do you define your contribution can you clarify that question a little well bit okay all right so i will open that question up a bit there are two sides to contribution there is the contribution that we give out to the world and clearly your books and things are your some of your contribution but how do you feel you contribute to the world. I mean, your success question may even be the answer to that, to this thing. Yeah, I was thinking it was similar. You know, the, <clears throat> I think what, another word that people have a, a concern with or problem with is the word legacy. Well, it is the same thing, contribution. And, and of course, the reality is people forget you as soon as you're gone, but. <laughs> I, I got you. So they think legacy is the building that you've paid for because you've been so successful in life. And that's not legacy. Legacy is the, to me, what, how we can define contribution is if you're li living your legacy. If when you're not in the room, there's an aspect of how somebody operates that is a result of, of either what they've learned from you or, or taught directly, Right. So if somebody has a phenomenal mother who who teaches a certain approach or a father that teaches a certain approach and and that's part of how they operate, that's their legacy coming through. Mm -hmm. And and contribution is or legacy is I want people to I want people to be living their legacy. I, I don't want them doing the job because it's how they make money. I want them I want them doing and adding value to those that they can in a way that their heart is singing, not living the lie that we've been taught since we were born, you know, which is work the job you hate and then enjoy your life when you retire. That's just purely a lie. It's a fantasy. I want people to be living their life today, living their legacy, living their love. Um, and finding a way in which they can monetize it to support whatever lifestyle they want. Living their and, love and is so, a lovely phrase. Yeah, that's my, thank you, by the way, never said that before either. Um, that's the, so my contribution is to have the most simple thing I have in the world is this thing called a CPOP. <laughs> and it is the PhD program I'm doing is going to be, um, the dissertation is is focusing on the missing element in leadership. And mm -hmm. that's that really is the, the CPOP. And the when I say leadership, 
not just leadership, it can be easily extrapolated, not just from corporate leadership, but individual leadership. How are you leading your life? So contribution has two sides. It's a coin with two sides. <clears throat> you know, there's all this thing in the world that people give out and it's really easy to give, give and give. Where do you receive? Where do you contribute to yourself? Mm. Well, that's if, if you remember the under being, um, there's three there's three values of credibility I'll bring up in this answer. Um, under being trustworthy, one of the most important elements is being coachable, right? And and so many people who are in the old days, we were told to be an expert, and the expert knows all. And the expert who knows all will never listen and learn from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you, uh, once you realize that being trustworthy means that you're con- on a continuous learning path, um, that's how you how you give to yourself. The other thing I'll mention is, is the value of integrity. Of the 10 values that are associated with credibility, integrity is the only value that was listed twice. Now, by the way, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, I'm going to do this in a way that you could see the trustworthiness of me, of Mitchell, as I'm going to be vulnerable. And I'm going to say, here's another scenario where I actually published the results and I did not know why integrity was listed twice. I I had integrity under the pillar of being trustworthy, I had integrity under the pillar of being known. And it was a year later that um, it was actually a woman by the name of Cheryl Lynn who focuses on joy. And at the end of the conversation, she said something that really hit hit my mind. She says, Mitchell, do you realize that happiness is on the outside and joy is on the inside? And I go, oh, wow. And then the next morning I woke up and go, I know why integrity is listed twice. There's integrity associated with being trustworthy. And this is what you project to the world. And there's this integrity associated with being known. And this is your internal integrity. And what you see with politicians that have, or, or CEOs that have fallen is that they had a disconnect between their external and internal integrity. The old command and control model where it's uh, do what I say, not what I do, that is a, that is a disconnect between integrity and that is a, a sure rapid. Sadly, it's, it's rife in the political world these days. So, yep. Sadly, we have a real problem with leadership at the moment. That's, that's, that's clearly. Uh, absolutely. So that, that's kind of the, 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 the contribution to self is you can't be credible externally until you're credible internally. And, and it's, but it's what do really... you do to contribute to yourself? Oh, me personally? Yeah, you personally. Oh, well, I, one thing I do is this conversation, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, I'm, I am on, uh, I've probably been on four or five, 600 podcasts. I've, I've actually conducted over a thousand myself and I am <clears throat> constantly in a state of learning. Hmm. Nice. And, and so, you know, I, 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 I take notes of the stuff that I've done. I, um, I, what, what came out of this conversation so far, which by the way, significant, right. Is, is the, the last that I said that you highlighted was living your love just sort of popped out. 
But I think the the comparing and contrasting um, the K the the no like trust versus the trust no like hmm. right it's these are things Paul that were right in front of me both of those things were absolutely right in front of me but you helped them take shape thank you right so whether or not you purposely it or maybe it was the questions you asked or it doesn't matter what really matters is that I was I was receptive to listen mm-hmm. and so how do I you know I I I don't really read books I listen to books so I I I listen to books I go to events I talk to 30 to 60 people a week um I'm on podcasts I deliver podcasts I'm I believe what's fun in life is a continuous state of learning and and seeing where people are in the path and when people are receptive and you have to be receptive um giving the most simple thing in life for me in terms of joy is and and let me let me go to um the CPOP. I've now listened and helped over a thousand people get frequency to to be basically have the 10 words or less that represent their customer point of possibilities. What's interesting to me is that over 900 times, now let's assume that people were in frequency. They had the words, they felt good about it. They knew exactly who their audience was and and how the audience spoke and wanted to wanted to listen. And over 900 times the person who I who I basically helped get in sync got out of sync between 2 hours and 2 weeks. Right? Because the world wants to put them back to whatever their normal was. Yep. Right? So what's a newer thought for me is not just to have people understand their CPOP, but to to allow people to be focusing on CPOPing. CPOPing is a verb that says, hey, are you in alignment with your CPOP? And what was most amazing about this weekend in Sedona, you asked me how, how I was, and I said, <laughs> phenomenal. And I was phenomenal because I was a witness and contributor to the my PhD advisor who was C, actively C popping with the PhD candidates, mm. making sure that the work they were doing, their dissertation was lined up for who they wanted to be and what they were going to do with it after they graduated with a PhD and their dissertation in hand. That was such a, a an amazingly cool and and valuable thing to see see popping in action directed by somebody else nice right powerful so so that's what i need to do next that's what i need to focus on with um with those people in my program is how can they be actively see popping and and i once again it was something that was in front of me but it hadn't actually taped take taken shape yet so i just thought i would share with you me sort of pulling an idea together live. How am I contributing to Mitchell? Yeah, 
yeah. by thinking and and exploring and and having um, and taking action, right? And following in my face when I need to. So my final question of my set questions to you is meaning. What do you do it all for? You know, some people it's it's a God or no God question. Some people there's nothing to do with that. Because meaning is something that we have to give life and then believe it and take action around it. Because I can, and it was what I was called to the planet to do. That sounds good enough to me. If that's what, if that's what you believe and that's what works for you, that's all that matters. And it's fascinating that everyone has a different answer for that conversation. For those who have been parents or will be parents, there's nothing more powerful than seeing the growth and the trajectory and, and the occasional nudging. Uh, to be able to do that on a broader scale with a large number of of humans and transforming their the thinking and acting process is huge. Mm. And I've got a I've got a framework that it's continually being molded, <clears throat> but it's one which will bring us back to it'll bring us back to a world that is more like we were when we were in caves and lived in tribes and we all supported each other. So we're coming to the end of our time together. What is the one thing you want to add to this conversation that we might have missed that you think our, our listeners would benefit from? That's a great, it, it's, it's always my favorite question when I'm interviewing and because you allowed this to be longer, I, I think we did a great job at, um, I think we did a great job of getting people to think about, uh, I'm just going to summarize everything. Um, my guess is that everyone who's listening has at least one or more marketing cookie cutter approach to life that is full of shit and you need to drop. And fundamentally, if you could do this one exercise I'm going to share with you right now, um, and that is if you are a credible human, you are of service to others. So what I'd like you to, to answer in one, two or three words is who is that audience you serve? And the next part of it in one to one to five words, what is fundamentally either the pain point they're looking to overcome or the pleasure point they want to reach. And that, as simple as that sounds, it is not easy for people to do. And it is not easy to live by. No, it's a really difficult thing to do. I have worked with many clients and that. I've struggled with the same conversation myself. So I know it's a very difficult thing to do. So thank you for that. So if it want to get in touch with you and explore that further, how would they do this? You know, the best the best way, I'm, I'm a big fan, social media wise, LinkedIn's the place I spend the most energy. That said, if you want to learn more about me, go to my website. It's Mitchell Levy. So it's M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-L-E-V-Y.com. Uh, three L's there. And you, it, it will point to all the the bigger things, the key things I'm focused, whether it's book publishing, executive coaching, or the, the clarity work we're doing. And uh, if you're intrigued enough, you can click on contact and book time directly on my calendar. 
Sounds fantastic. Well, all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. In the meantime, Mitchell Levy, thank you so much for this this wonderful journey we've been on. It's been a real joy to work with you and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. I love your interview style, your receptivity, and how you pull things together. So thanks. Thank you for having me. All the best. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Mitchell Levy. If you'd like to discover more about Mitchell, you can find him on his website, credibilitynation.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, and on Instagram. Now, all those links will be available at the website, lifepassionandbusiness.com. Hopefully, you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means. That is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions, ebook and worksheets. Now, this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery. And it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.